Good morning. Hi, you guys. It's good to see you. Uh, yes. I don't know what you're applauding, but you know, let's go. Let's go for it. That's great. <laughs> I don't, yeah. Um, uh, the Warriors are two and zero, so we yeah. can applaud that. You know. You know. Let's go. Let's go, Cody. Cody knows. Uh, if we've never met, my name is Jay, and I'm part of the team here. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, man, you guys are either you're either not. Californian or you're a brave Californian because when the first rains come, it's quite challenging. And here you are. You could have watched online and here you are, the courageous ones. Welcome to everyone watching online as well. Who? Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm so glad you're joining us. You've got good reason. I wouldn't want to drive this weather either. But honestly, you guys, online and in this room, we're not the bravest. The bravest are our incredible men and women sitting in the tent. Like driving in the rain was not enough for you. You need to sit in the rain. And here you are. So well done. So, so glad you're all here. Seriously. Really, really grateful. Uh, I want to begin by, uh, I want to show you a pencil sketching of a story. This is a pencil sketching of a story of a man named Dirk Willems. And uh, when a man's name is Dirk, you know the story's going to be awesome or horrible, and this story is both. Uh, Dirk Willems was a 16th century Dutch Christian. And at the time, uh, in the 16th century, in, in the Netherlands, um, the Roman Catholic Church ruled. And it didn't just rule religiously, it ruled socially. And so if you did not adhere to all of the theological distinctives of the Roman Catholic Church at the time, then that was a punishable offense. Like, and when I say punishable, I mean imprisonment and at the Roman Catholic Church's sort of whim, you could be put to death if you didn't publicly agree with all of their theology. So Dirk Willems, long story short, Dirk Willems, he, uh, he rejected the idea of infant baptism. Now, don't get caught up in that. That's like a different conversation for a different time. And, um, you know, that's a debatable matter in, in Christian theology. But basically what happened was Dirk Willems uh, rejected the idea of infant baptism. That was a big deal, is a big deal in the Roman Catholic Church. And so the church arrested Dirk Willems and put him in prison. And this was the year 1569. And so uh, Dirk Willems is in prison. He's up in this like tall tower and his prison cell is up at the top of the tower. And one winter morning, he gets this idea. He collects all of these dirty rags that were in his prison cell. He ties them all up together and he escapes prison by rappelling down the, the side of this tower. And so Dirk Willems, who is unjustly arrested for not holding to a particular theological position, he breaks out of prison in 1569. This is the middle of winter in the Netherlands. Everything is frozen over. There was this giant pond next to his prison tower. And so Dirk Willems rappels out of the prison tower. He begins running across this pond, which had been iced over. And tradition tells us that Dirk Willems had had such little food to eat in prison that he was able to traverse over this icy pond and not break the ice. But as he's running, his prison guard hears him and his prison guard gives chase as you do. And so the prison guard is chasing Dirk Willems across the icy pond. Dirk Willems is almost to the other side of the pond to safety and freedom. And the prison guard who is chasing him breaks the ice and begins drowning in this freezing water. He screams out for help. And what does Dirk Willems do? Dirk Willems turns around and he runs back 
to the guard and he rescues the guard out of the water. And then what happens to Dirk Willems? The prison guard arrests him. And eventually, Dirk Willems is executed. Okay, why do I share this story with you? This is a true story. I share this story with you because the story is about lots of things, but one of the things it certainly is about, the story is about the collision between injustice and justice. Dirk Willems faces grave injustice. He's arrested for something that in hindsight now, it's like, man, that's not something to arrest a person for. Even more than that, he's arrested twice. Even more than that, he's actually killed. He's burned at the stake because he disagrees with what is a debatable matter in Christian theology. Dirk Willems faces injustice after injustice after injustice. But what does Dirk Willems do? What does he do in light of that injustice he faces? He does the just thing. He does the right thing. What do I mean by that? I mean it in the simplest, purest way possible. Some of us hear that, like you're already nervous because I said the word justice like four times already. And you're, you're already nervous. And the reason is because that word has been co-opted by culture today to mean a wide variety of very specific things. But that's not the justice I'm talking about. I'm talking about justice in the purest, most human sense of the word. What do I mean when I say that Dirk Willems, when faced with injustice, that he does the just thing? What I mean is he heard the outcry of someone in need and he responded. He went back, even at great cost to himself, to help the person in need. That's what I mean by justice. I don't mean all of the different things you have in your mind right now because Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and whatever else have told you that's what justice is. I mean justice in the purest, and I would suggest most biblical sense of the word. There's this uh, strange thing that has happened to us in culture today. Um, C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery. This idea that what is new is the only thing that matters. What is newest is the best. And one of the things uh, that that's done to us is we think when we talk about justice, we, we're talking about um, some sort of new invention that enlightened 21st century Western American humans have invented a concept called justice. Well, the reality is justice is found on the earliest pages of the Bible. And so we have to parse this out. And the reason is, uh, if you've been with us for a little while, you know that for the last month and a half or so, we took a couple of break, uh, a couple weeks of a break because we had a beautiful day where we went out and served our city. And then last Sunday, we celebrated all that God did throughout our city during a beautiful day. So we took a, a little break for two weeks. But if you've been around for a little while, you know that we've been journeying through the life of a man named Abraham based on a book uh, called Abraham, A Field Guide to Loving God, written by our very own Dave Tish, one of our teaching pastors right here. Well done. And um, you know that the reason we're doing this is not just because we want to know about Abraham. We're doing this because we believe that Abraham's life, this seminal figure in the Bible, the man called the father of our faith, right? Abraham's life reveals to us, it paints a picture for us of what it means to live a life of love toward God. 
Love is also one of those words that's been co-opted by culture, and it means all sorts of things now. And so we're exploring the life of Abraham because his life paints a picture for us of what it actually practically means in our everyday lives to love God. And so we've been on this journey for a while, and today and next Sunday for a couple of weeks, we're going to explore one key idea that Abraham's life reveals to us about what it means to love God. And the idea is this, that loving God means living justly and seeking justice when we hear the outcry of those in need. Don't let the word justice scare you. And you're, you're like really nervous right now. Maybe he's like, what's Jay going to say? Where is he going to go? Is he like hyper conservative or super progressive liberal? Or you're thinking all of those things and just relax. What I want to do is not go left or right. I want to go deeper in, into the heart of God together, to the place where our politics and our sociopolitical leanings and our opinions fade into the background in the light of God's incredible unifying grace and love. And in that heart of God lies justice, actual justice. Because loving God, as we will see actually even more so next Sunday, today is just kind of a primer, but we will see in the next couple of weeks that loving God, a part of loving God, means living justly and seeking justice when we hear the outcry of those in need. What that means is that in our everyday lives, loving God means doing what's right and helping set the world right. I think we would all agree that our world is a broken, fractured, hurting place. And by world, I mean your micro world, your neighborhoods, your workplaces, your friends, your family, your foes. And I mean our world, the global world, all around the world, the literal planet. There's a lot of pain and a lot of brokenness and a lot of inequity and a lot of anger and a lot of contempt and a lot of vitriol. And loving God, followers of Jesus, to love God well, it means we step into the fray and we live justly, we do what's right, we seek just, justice, and we help set the world right. We can't do it on our own, but we join God in that work. This is biblical justice in a nutshell. To do what's right according to God, not culture or our opinions, and to help set things right according to the way God intends, not our own imagery or visions of a utopia. Let me say that again. Biblical justice in a nutshell is to do what's right according to God and to set things right the way God intends. We see this in the life of Abraham, Genesis chapter 18, literally 18 chapters into the Bible, we see justice. Let me show you. Genesis 18, God says, I, God, have chosen him, Abraham, so that he, Abraham, will direct his children and his household after him to do what? To keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. To keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Let's talk about those two words for just one 
second. If you have not picked up Dave's book, Abraham, A Field Guide to Loving God, I would highly recommend it. Um, that he does a fantastic job of really extrapolating the rich meaning of both of these words biblically. And I'm just going to give a very like cliff notes version of that. First, the word right, which is also translated righteousness, you've heard that word before, is the Hebrew word tzedakah. And tzedakah, it actually comes from a root word that literally means like straight, keeping something straight. It essentially, tzedakah, or living rightly, or doing right things, or setting things right, righteousness, is a word that means we pursue living in right relationship with God and others. That's what it means in the Bible when you read the word right or righteousness, tzedakah. It means living in right relationship with God and right relationship with other people. That we put effort and energy into living that way. And then the word just, which is often translated into the English word justice, is actually the Hebrew word mishpat. In mishpat, the best way to understand it, it's a word that means equity between people and within society. Equity. Now, this isn't like communism, socialism kind of equity, like everybody gets a morsel or something. It's not that. What it means is in an inequitable world, to pursue justice means that when you have much, you look toward those who have little and ask the question, how do I pursue equity here? How do I give of what I have so that those who do not have might have more? How do I help? How do I pursue flourishing, not just for me and my own, but for all? Righteousness and justice, right and just. Tzedakah mishpat. These are key ideas in the Bible. Now, here's the thing. If you looked at the passage carefully, here's what you saw. That living right and just is not about good morality. It's not about being a good person. What is it? It's about keeping the way of the Lord. God says, again, I've chosen Abraham so that he'll direct his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing uh, what is right and just. Righteousness and justice, living rightly and pursuing justice, doing the right thing, setting things right, seeking justice and living justly, it's not because culture tells you that's the good thing to do. It's not about virtue signaling on Twitter or Instagram. It's the way we keep the way of the Lord. Followers of Jesus pursue righteousness and justice not because people tell us it's the right thing to do. We do so because that's the way of the Lord. God is righteous and God is just. And so that's what we pursue. This invitation to living righteously and justly is actually found more than 2,000 times in the Bible. And it's not just the Old Testament. Jesus himself, I'll just give you one out of like dozens of examples I could give you. Jesus in Luke 11, for example, he says this, woe to you Pharisees. The Pharisees he's talking to are like the hypocritical religious leaders of the day. He says, woe to you Pharisees because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. These are religious rituals, but you neglect justice and the love of God. Jesus connects justice, living justly and seeking justice with, the, with loving God. 
And he says, you, you do all these religious rituals, but you neglect justice and love, loving God. And you should have practiced the latter. So like do the religious rituals without leaving the former undone. So like he, he's essentially saying like you need to pursue justice and love toward God and also do the religious rituals. Now, before we return to the Abraham story, Let's just wade into these waters because, again, like we don't need to be nervous or anxious here. But let's wade into these waters in terms of justice as a social buzzword in culture today. Those of us watching online, those of us in the room or in the tent, again, the moment you heard me say the word justice, you got nervous. Justice Tish got nervous because that's his actual name. And he thought I was like he was in trouble or something. I don't know if he's in the room anymore. He's like, oh, no, that's me. There he is. There he is. There's justice. You're ruining his name, by the way. Just like society as a whole, all this talk about justice, justice gets really confused. But here's the thing. The word has been pulled apart, and I would suggest it's been mangled in a wide variety of ways. And again, going back to that concept of chronological snobbery, there is this sense that like justice, the way it's presented um, in culture today is some sort of new invention. That we, like human beings, live just completely without any sense of justice until the last seven years or something. But again, we know that that's not true. And in fact, the genesis of justice is found in the heartbeat of God himself, that God is just. The writer Mark Sayers, he says that we want the kingdom without the king. And this is so true when it comes to justice. We want justice in our world without the just king who can actually create a just world. This is why cultural justice, in my opinion, has good intentions most or some of the time, but will always fail. Because it is a human effort and it is detached from the one who is truly just. A couple of thoughts about this. What I mean is for it, just as one, one example, cultural justice, when you really unpack cultural justice, like cultural versions of justice, again, usually good intentions, but when you really unpack it, you will find that the genesis of the arguments being made have almost everything to do with individual autonomy and freedom. It's about not infringing on my right as a human to live my way. If you unpack it enough, that's almost always where cultural justice will lead you. And again, the intentions are good. This is so that people can live free and people can make their own choices, and that's all good. I would suggest to you it doesn't go far enough. That biblical justice, rather than emphasizing and primarily focusing on individual autonomy and individual, uh, individual freedom, biblical justice is actually about communal flourishing. It's way more costly. It demands sacrifice. It demands that you do more than tweet 240 characters, but actually give of yourself to one another. This is one of the reasons why two Sundays ago, we didn't have any church gatherings and over a thousand of us were across 18 projects all over our city trying to do that. We weren't just talking the talk. We gave up hours of our weekend in a very small way to walk a little bit of the walk, to help people in our community who lack have a bit of flourishing, to give them a vision of where God is taking the story. That's biblical justice. 
Let me show you one of so many examples. This is Deuteronomy 24. It's so random, but just hang with me. God says this, when you are harvesting your field, like you do, right? <laughs> You're like, that's me. No, no, that's nobody. We live in the Silicon Valley. This is an agrarian society. When you are harvesting your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go back over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes from your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. This is biblical justice. It is to take what you have been given, to recognize it's all a blessing from God, a gift from God, and to not hoard for yourself, but to leave some for those who have need. This, this actualizes itself in literal ways with our physical possessions and belongings and finances and all that, but it, it actualizes itself in a wide variety of ways, emotionally, relationally, socially, occupationally. I mean, so many different ways. There are ways when we really put our minds and our hearts to it that we can leave some for others. That's biblical justice. It's not about your autonomy and freedom as an individual, first and foremost. It is about the flourishing of all. This really matters. This is a distinct difference between where cultural justice eventually takes us and where biblical justice longs for us to go. Another difference. Cultural justice, again, usually with very good intentions, when you parse it out enough, what you discover is that cultural versions of justice often whittle down to an emphasis on reallocating power. The reality of our world is there are some who have power and some who lack power. There are the powerful and the powerless. This is how our world works. And I will suggest to you that is how the world will be until Christ the King returns and rules and reigns forever. Until the return of Jesus, our world will always live in a never-ending cycle of the powerful and the powerless. Cultural justice, what it is most interested in most of the time, again, usually with good intentions, is to remove those who have power and to replace them with those who lack power. Now, again, good intentions to stand up for the marginalized and the oppressed and the voiceless. The problem is the system never changes. Eventually, you still have those who have power and those who lack power. They just switch places. Biblical justice recognizes that that distorted way of interacting between human beings will not go away until Christ returns and every nation, tongue, and tribe bows before him as king. And so what biblical justice calls us to do is not focused primarily on the reallocation of power, but rather on corporate responsibility, advocacy, and reconciliation. Biblical justice understands that until Christ returns, there will always be those who have power and always be those who do not have power. Biblical justice is not interested in revolution. 
Biblical justice is interested in reconciliation. What that means is that the powerful give of their power to lift up the powerless. That's biblical justice. There are example after example I could show you, but the best example is the example you're already thinking of. What does Jesus do? The most powerful being in the universe, God himself, comes down and what does he do for you and for me? He relinquishes his power so that all of us who lack the power in and of ourselves to lift ourselves up out of sin and death, he gives his power, his actual life, he bleeds and his body is broken on a criminal's cross so that we, the powerless, might be grafted in to his power so that death is no longer the end for us. This is biblical justice. It is Jesus on the cross dying a death he did not have to die so that we might have a life that we could not possibly have. That's justice. Now, here's what's really fascinating. If that is true, then it actually, in a strange way, rips the powerful and the powerless dynamics apart. If in light of Jesus, the one true king who did for humans what no human, as powerful as they think they are, could possibly do for themselves, what it does is it evens and levels the playing field. And it calls us toward corporate responsibility. Let me read for you a very obscure passage from the book of Daniel, this ancient book. This man named Daniel, who is a really godly, righteous, just man, Praise this prayer. Really interesting. Daniel 9. I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. This is the posture of someone who has done a grave evil against God. So he's taking the posture of someone who's like done something really bad toward God, but he hasn't in the story. That's what's really interesting. Verse four, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. What does he say? We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. If you read the story, what you realize is at least in the story, Daniel doesn't do any of those things. Daniel's not wicked. He doesn't turn away from the Lord. He leans into the Lord. He keeps God's laws. He keeps God's commands. And yet what does he do? He takes on corporate responsibility. Listen, it is easier to, to clench your fist or point your finger and cast blame at the other and say it's their fault our world is so broken. But the reality is the fracturing, the breaking apart, the pulling apart of society is not just their problem, it's my problem. It begins in my heart and in my mind. The fact that there is injustice, not just out there, there is injustice in me. 
There's injustice in the way I think about and interact with the people around me when, they don't, when things don't go my way, when people are inconveniencing me. There is injustice in my home and the brokenness of my relationships sometimes with my wife or my kids and all of the moments that I fail. There's injustice in ways that I don't even see in the way I spend my money and the things that I purchase. You can connect all of the different dots and you realize you create a nexus web of injustice that you are part of. Maybe you're a good person, but in reality, we're all sinners. Biblical justice levels the playing field and it calls us to take corporate responsibility. It's not their fault, it's our fault. It's your fault and it's mine. Our world is broken not because of them, it's broken because of sin, which is in us. Biblical justice also is about advocacy. There are so many places I could go, but here's just one of dozens and dozens. Proverbs 31, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. I mean, I don't need to explain much more than that, right? It's about advocacy. And finally, biblical justice is about reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. Not just for you. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Biblical justice is not about revolution. It is not about stripping the powerful of their power and giving it to the powerless. Biblical justice looks at that broken system right in the eyes and it says it doesn't matter who has power or doesn't have power. In God's kingdom, we are all on level ground and we need the grace of God to rescue all of us. And as we do, we participate in advocating for one another particularly those who are weak and wounded and in need. We hear the outcry of those who are suffering and we respond as best as we can. The sociologist and writer Christian Smith, he explains it this way. He says that cultural justice gives an explanatory rationale. And what he means is that cultural justice essentially talks a lot about justice. But then he says, biblical justice doesn't do that. It's like the language is not that sophisticated in the Bible when it comes to justice. He says biblical justice, actually what it does is it offers justifying motivation. What he means is biblical justice is not interested in how much you know about justice or injustice. Biblical justice is interested in motivating you and I to act justly, to live righteously. We hear this motivation to act in the Abraham story. Again, Abraham, Genesis 18, I have chosen him. This is God. I, God, have chosen him, Abraham, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. 
so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. That word outcry is a word that means like crying or screaming or yelling. It's actually a really harsh, difficult, pained word. Dave, our our, um, teaching pastor, Dave Tish, he describes it this way in the book. This word outcry is a charged word referring to the plaintive, desperate, aching cry for help that someone being violated or oppressed. And God hears these cries. They reach him. They reach him. Listen, this is good news not just for the person suffering. It's good news for you and for me because sometimes that's us. Sometimes that's me. Sometimes I have to outcry to God because life is so hard, it's so painful, it's so confusing. And if that is you, especially right now, even if you feel like no one on the planet hears you, God hears you. And he's just. And he will do what's right. Psalm 146 says that God upholds the cause of the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. In that passage, you see that God hears the outcry of those in need. And you saw several words. In fact, you've probably noticed them throughout this teaching. They are what um, some scholars would call the quartet of the vulnerable. Throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New, you will see these four categories of people come up over and over again when God talks about his heart of justice for those in need. He will often mention widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor. Let me show you some examples. Isaiah 1, learn to, do what, uh, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, the orphans. Plead the case of the widow, the widows. Exodus 22, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were a foreigner in Egypt. Or Psalm 82, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This quartet is really helpful because, one, it means God literally cares, he literally cares for widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor. And again, going back just a couple of weeks to some of the work you all did throughout our city during Beautiful Day. I know we celebrated it last Sunday, but I can't celebrate it enough. I am so proud and humbled to be a part of a community with you, a community like you, who is willing to give so much time, energy, resources to come alongside literal widows, orphans, um, foreigners, and the poor in our midst, right here in Silicon Valley. That is a beautiful, powerful thing. And what that means is you, for those few hours, if you serve, you were trying to pursue biblical righteousness and justice. That's what you were doing. You weren't just getting four hours of community service so you can get your high school teacher to sign it off, justice, right? You were doing that because you were participating in the work of righteousness and justice in the world according to the way God has called us as followers of Jesus. And that is a beautiful, thing. What it also means is that it reveals the heart of God. 
It means that he hears the outcry, not just of literal widows, but of those who are experiencing loneliness or loss. And maybe that's you today. It means that he hears not only the outcry of literal orphans, he hears the outcry of all of us who have experienced abandonment, particularly at the hands of those who were supposed to love us most. The heartbreak and the heartache of, of those who were supposed to be there for us, who abandoned us. God hears your cry. It means that God's heart is such that he, do, he not only hears the literal foreigner, but if you have experienced marginalization or, or oppression or being pushed out to the edges of culture or society in any way, God's heart is for you and he hears you. It means that God not only hears the, the cries of the literal poor, the physical poor, but he hears the cries of all of us who have experienced lack in our lives, emotional, spiritual, physical, mental, relational. If you are poor in any way, God hears your cries. And because God hears those cries, we as followers of Jesus are called to, to participate with them in hearing those cries and responding when we hear them. Tim Keller puts it this way, that if God's character includes a zeal for justice that leads him to have the tenderest love and closest involvement with the socially weak, then what should God's people be like? They must be people who are likewise passionately concerned for the weak and vulnerable. This is one of the reasons why tomorrow night, actually, in the theater, we're hosting a lab called um, uh, Racial Brokenness and Reconciliation with uh, Dr. Josephine Kim, who is a Harvard professor and actually um, works at the UN working on reconciliation efforts. Uh, more than all of that, though, she's a passionate follower of Jesus. And um, she'll focus a bit on some of the, the narrative and some of the experiences that have been really painful, specifically for Asian Americans in the last few years, but going decades back further than that. Um, but this is just a first word in, uh, in some conversations that we want to have. And listen, here's the thing. Let me just be very clear. I've received like emails this week because we promoted this event. And I understand why, because I understand the fear. I've received some emails like asking me like, oh, Jay, are you like a progressive liberal now that doesn't care about the Bible and you just want to get caught, caught up in the cultural milieu? That's not what this is. I mean, if you and I were to sit down for like 10 minutes, you would realize very clearly that's not who I am. It's not what our church is. This is about us simply hearing the cries of those in our community who have been really pained in the last several years and saying, let's talk. Like, share your pain with us. Share your pain. Again, this is a first word, not a last word, because one of the beautiful things about our community is that there are all sorts of stories and all sorts of backgrounds. And we're going to lean into this in the years to come, but we're going to lean into it not because culture tells us to. We're not going to lean into cultural versions of justice. We're just going to lean harder and deeper into the heart of God as best as we can. And we may stumble along the way, but that's why we're hosting an event like this, simply because we want to hear the cries of those in our community who are in pain. We've done this well in the past, and sometimes we've failed, and we're just trying to do our best. So I would invite you, whether you're Asian American or not, if you want to join us, come out tomorrow night in the theater, um, tomorrow night, and, uh, and we'll talk. This is also why during our Giving Good campaign, 25% of every dollar you give is going directly to build wells for the literal poor around the world. 
25% of what you give will go directly to building wells. And this is something our church has done um, for years now. I think, Dave, it's like $2.6 million we've raised in 10 years, and it's hundreds of wells for over a quarter million people who did not have clean drinking water who now have clean drinking water because you bring your bottles and your cans and give every year to build wells. I mean, a quarter million people who have clean drinking water now in the name of Jesus. That's justice. That's righteousness, you guys. You know, um, when I think about justice, actually, it's funny because, like, most of the time when I'm watching TV or on social media and something comes up about justice, it's usually huge and grand, and it's about policy change and marches and X, Y, and Z. And those can be good. Sometimes they can be really bad or something in the middle, usually. But um, what's really interesting is th those are so big, and we need to participate in the big stuff, absolutely. But when I think about justice, you know, uh, I usually think about uh, a man whose name I don't remember. Um, some of you know my story, but my mom, when I was a kid in elementary school and early middle school, my mom owned a little alteration shop that was right here in this corner in the same, same little um, center next to La Cueva, which is maybe the best Mexican restaurant in all of San Jose. So Lord, thank you for the blessing of La Cueva here. Hallelujah. Um, yes. Loudest applause of the day. If nothing unifies us, La Cueva Burritos can unify us. Um, so my mom used to own a little alteration shop here. And some of you know my story. I was a single child with a, a single mom. And she always worked two, three jobs at a time to make ends meet. And um, she had this customer who was like in his late 70s, early 80s. I don't remember his name now. But he was like this sweet old man. He'd come in every week with different clothes that he needed altered. And uh, he would always check in with us and ask our story and ask me how I was doing. I'm like 10 or 11 years old. And at the time, I was like a big baseball fan. And this is kind of sacrilegious now, but I was an A's fan because the A's were really good in the late 80s, early 90s. And it was like 90% because of steroids, but I didn't care. I didn't know, you know? So uh, Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire. And uh, I was a big A's fan, but I had never been to a baseball game because like my mom, too busy, we didn't have money. And I didn't have a dad in my life. And one day he asks me, uh, he knew I liked baseball, and he asks me if I'd ever been to a baseball game. And I said no, that I really wanted to go. I'm in fifth grade. I think I'm like 10 or 11 years old. And the next week he comes back, and he had worked it out with my mom. And he looks at me, and he pulls out three tickets to an Oakland A's game. And he says, hey, like on Thursday night, I'm going to pick you up here at the shop at like 4 o'clock or something after you're done with school, and we're going to go to a game. I got three tickets, and I want you to invite one friend, like your best friend. And so I invite my friend Brent. And you guys, for a kid who did not have a dad in my life, to be able to go to a friend and say, hey, do you want to go with me to an A's game was like everything, you know? Like my chest just puffed up and I felt, nor I felt like a normal American kid. You know what I'm saying? For an immigrant kid, that's a big deal. So I invite my friend Brent and he comes with me and this man, he, he, um, I'm so bummed I don't remember his name. Um, he drives us up to the Oakland Coliseum and they're playing the Seattle Mariners who at the time had a young Ken Griffey Jr. who was my favorite player at the time. 
And um, not only that, I got my friend Brent. He's excited. I'm excited. I'm feeling like this is amazing. And then we get our tickets and we go into the lower deck. And we walk in. And I realize as we're walking, like we're sitting pretty close. And, and we keep walking. And we sit in row one behind home plate, which is the best seat in the house. It's the most expensive seat you can buy in baseball. And for nine innings, my friend Brent and I feel like we're on top of the world. And he buys us hot dogs and a beer. I'm just, <laughs> I was like, what? this is like the American experience. It's a 10-year-old drinking a Bud Light. No, there was no beer. There was no beer. No beer, but many hot dogs and French fries. And I think it was like in the later innings, maybe six or seven, Ken Griffey Jr. hits a home run to right field. This was 30-something years ago, and I will never forget it. Justice is, yes, it is the big stuff of life. But sometimes, maybe even tomorrow, God's invitation for you to live righteously and justly could be as small as seeing someone no one else sees and leaning towards someone no one else is leaning toward. And you might change the trajectory of a life. Because here we are, 30 years later, talking about an 80-year-old man who picked up a little 10-year-old Asian boy in the corner of that store and took him to a baseball that's justice. We're going to sing this song. The band is going to sing this song. As we do, I just want you to open your hearts and minds to the words. Let them wash over you as a reminder of the call, the invitation to live rightly and justly that God is inviting all of us to together.
Just a smile, they will feel the Father's love. 